Welcome to the latest edition of Lima Land Hoops and History Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Childers. Great to be with you. Hope you and your family are safe and being well at this time. Make sure you stay home and you stay safe. And that's why we're giving you a little entertainment here on the Lima Land Hoops and History Podcast. Today's guest, it's my colleague, my good friend, it's Coach John Cook. And John, he's been on the basketball scene in this area for more than three decades uh, he's been a fixture on our radio program, on our radio stations, and he's a guy who really loves the game like no other, but can also break it down like no other. We're going to talk about college coaches and college hoops in this part one of part two of Lima Land Hoops in History with John Cook. I started off by asking John, why basketball for you as a basketball junkie? What made you tick? been a little frustrating so I'm looking forward to something like this it should be fun yeah hey uh it's it's really a pleasure to have you on the program and you know as a result of uh, what's going on uh we uh we lost really the last uh couple weekends of the high school hoops tournament which uh, we're looking very good for our area uh and uh what I'd like to do in in part two is really talk about uh uh, your thoughts on uh, that uh, season that was in 2019 and 2020, and, and then also get your thoughts on the high school world. I guess what uh, what I'd like to do today is uh, is start with you know, just your inspiration and 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 why basketball for you uh, uh, because you're you're a great lover of basketball and you're somebody who's followed the game for many many years. Uh, what was the inspiration behind that? Well, it's, it's a good question and something I really enjoy talking about, to be brutally honest with you, because, you know, I grew up in, in a very rural area in Hardin County, um, outside of Alger and in between Ada and Alger in the country, and, and I grew up on a farm, and uh, my dad was a big basketball fan, but, but he had a large, as family farms go, a fairly large family farm to run. We had 800 head of cattle and six or 700 acres of ground that, that my dad and his dad uh, farm together and then my grandfather was in Alabama for a lot of his life because he had uh, severe diabetes and health concerns and he needed to be in warmer weather and so they owned a, a smaller farm in Alabama also and, and that really wasn't going to be my life. I didn't have uh, the interest in that and, and my dad is, is my hero in terms of a guy who taught me everything I know about work ethic and integrity and, and consistency as a person. Um, but I didn't have the love for that. And I, to be honest with you, it was, it was kind of bizarre growing up. I'm an identical twin, but I had a lot of uh, physical complications from birth. When I, we were eight weeks premature and I had some real difficult struggles. And I, I ended up with what was diagnosed as a very mild case of cerebral palsy. I had physical difficulties. My left side of my body was weak, um, but I, I, I went everywhere with my brother. I mean, I had an identical twin. So when we went to school we went to school together when we hung out with friends we hung out together when our friends played pickup we played pickup and I was always there um, and I honestly can't tell you exactly what it was about basketball or when uh, I knew I loved it I just don't ever remember not loving it and I and I knew really really early in my life um, that the likelihood of me being able to play it wasn't very good and I had to be around it I needed to be around it for me I, I was probably Matt I'm I'm gonna guess I was between the seventh and the eighth grade um, when I told my dad, I, I think I want to be a history teacher and a basketball coach. Um, you know, I was whatever you are, 13 years old. And, and I, and I, my dad, to his credit, said to me at that time, well, if that's what you are and what you're passionate about, then we've got to find ways to make that happen. And he connected me with some people through some family mutual friends who had some connections in the, in the AAU world. And at the age of 13 or 14, I was coaching, you know, third and fourth grade kids at the Y in Lima, or I was coaching at, at the age of 16 or 17 and 18, I was coaching 11, 12 and 13 year olds in AAU out of Van Wert, mm -hmm. uh, the organization that Jim Clay used to run. So I just, I just, that was always going to be what I was going to do. I, I couldn't find anything else that I was passionate about. And, and, you know, I grew up a lot of my younger, my early days of my youth when I was real young, thinking I was kind of lazy because I didn't like farming and I didn't want to really want to do that. Uh, and then I found basketball, and all I wanted to do was work at it. I mean, that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to be doing it all the time, and, and the hours didn't matter, and the time didn't matter. And so I chased that from really early on in a little bit of an unconventional way, I guess you might say. Yeah, indeed. Uh, John Cook joining us here on the Lima Land Hoops and History podcast. Uh, when you think of those images of growing up and going with your brother and 
going to play uh, hoops, uh, whether it was uh, in the quote unquote neighborhood or at a gym. Uh, what, what do you recall about those days? Well, the, the funnest thing I can remember about my childhood, because we, you know, we started playing open gyms, you know, at our school, we went to Upper Saddle Valley. So we went to open gyms in seventh or eighth grade and obviously in high school, but I can't remember exactly which birthday it was. I want to say it was my 12th, I don't know, my 12th or 13th birthday. I think my, my, my mom owned a beauty salon that was right behind our house. So both my parents were self-employed uh, and my mom's beauty salon had a, a, a gravel parking lot. And, and my dad, uh, for our 12th or 13th birthday, I think, uh, basically turned my mom's parking lot into a fully paved full court basketball court. Um, I mean, when I say full court, I'm, I'm guessing the entire length of the court might've been 35 feet, but, or 40 feet, you know, we weren't, we weren't talking about an 80 foot court, but, but we had two hoops up and a concrete floor and we played a lot of summer basketball Sunday afternoons from the time I was 14 or 15 till I was a senior in high school at 17. A lot of our Sunday afternoons in the summer were, you know, four on four with four teams playing pickup at my house. And, and we would, you know, break into the back door of my mom's beauty shop and raid her pot machine and <laughs> take yeah. breaks when it got too hot. But um, that's how I spent a lot of my youth. It was with my friends either on that court outdoors or, or in, in the old pit at, at Upper Saddle Valley at open gyms. And, you know, we didn't have the open the opportunity to be inside in the gym in the summer like you have now. You couldn't work with your teams or play. And so as a kid, even though I was probably not going to make the team, and I, and I got cut really from my freshman year through my junior year, I got cut in high school trying to make the team. But I was always playing, always with those guys. And it, it's funny because I mean, he probably doesn't remember this. My first encounter with Quincy Simpson was when Quincy was probably, I don't know, I'm going to say maybe he was 13 or 14 years old maybe a little bit younger than that. And I was a junior or senior in high school and Quincy was playing AAU with a kid from Upper Saddle Valley named Brad Leonard. They were AAU teammates and Quincy made, made an appearance and drove out with Brad and played on one of those Sundays on that outdoor court at my parents' house, which is about a mile from where I'm sitting right now. And that was the first time I met Quincy Simpson. I'm sure Quincy probably doesn't remember that, but but he was there for a Sunday and it was really interesting back in those days. You didn't, you know, we had the time where guys would do things like that. They would ride their bike or drive if they could drive and get there. And we'd play literally four teams of four uh, two sit and two play in and, 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 and play from, from noon to seven or noon to eight on a Sunday. And, and I, I miss that. I really, really do miss seeing kids that are willing to and interested in doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. Those were the days, weren't they, where you would go anywhere to, to find a game, uh, that's uh, that that's great. Uh, that's a great memory. Um, when you talked about wanting to be a history teacher and a coach, who were those coaches that you gravitated to early on that you said, "Hey, I want to I, I want to mirror that." Well, I didn't have a lot of experiences and opportunities when I was really young to meet different people. So obviously, I went to the games at my high school at Upper Soda Valley, and when they played. People, I, again, Matt, for me, I, mean, I can remember being 10 or 11 years old and going to games and, and, and wanting to sit behind the opposing team's bench if I could because I wanted to watch the coach. I mean, I went to our practices as a high school kid. I didn't as much in elementary or junior high, but I went to USB's practices as a high school kid even if I was when I wasn't on the team because that's what I wanted to watch. And and so, you know, Frank Dowdena was the first high school coach that we had at Upper South Valley that really – had a big impact on me. He's a he's a principal at a, at a school system in Athens now, uh, Alexander School System in Athens, Ohio, and he's a doctor. He's got his doctorate now. Dr. Doudna was our basketball coach um, when my brother played JV a little bit as a freshman and as a sophomore, and then he was our varsity coach when we were juniors. But other than than those guys immediately, like in our area, um, when I was in about the eighth grade, I, I got a, a mailer uh, in, in my mailbox to come uh, to possibly come to Allen. It was at the time it was called Eastern Allen County Basketball Camp because that way the Allen East coaches could run it and not pay rent for their facility because it didn't have their school name on it. Mm. Uh, but Dave Isle was the boys basketball coach at Allen East High School during my high school career. From the time I was about a seventh or eighth grader until I graduated, Dave was the coach there. So my brother and I went to his camp every summer from eighth grade to, to 12th grade. Um, and Dave was my, I, if I had a mentor, a guy that really made me understand what I wanted to be and how I wanted to do it. It was Dave. Um, you know, if my brother wasn't playing, I went to Dave's games. I went to watch a lot of Dave's practices. I attended his camp. Rick Sherrick was his JV coach. Uh, Rick is an assistant at Ada High School now and obviously stayed at Allen East for a lot of years as, as the basketball coach and athletic director. And those two guys uh, were big influences on me. 
Um, and, and where I found my passion for that, the, if you will, the scientific side, the technical side of coaching was from those guys. Um, and and it, it spurred in me a real desire to go see people coach, not just watch basketball. And I think Coach Seg could even tell you this. When, when, from the time we were about freshmen or sophomores in high school until we graduated, um, LCC played a lot of Tuesdays. Of course, you know that. Anybody that's listening, it's, it's an area fan, knows that. Well, we didn't play Tuesdays. Upper Side of Valley played Friday, Saturday, basically all the time. And very, very seldom did we play a midweek game unless it was during a holiday situation or something like that. And uh, essentially every Tuesday night, uh, my dad, my brother, and I hopped in the car and we went wherever LCC played. Uh, and we sat three or four rows behind the bench where we could hear Coach Seg and where we could not be too obvious about things. Although years, years later, when I was working with you at the radio station, we went and grabbed pizza one night and Coach Seg said, he asked me, he said, what was the deal with He said, every damn time I looked up, you and your brother were sitting behind my bench. <laughs> and uh, that was, that was my way of chasing it. That was important to me to learn yep. those things and, and learn how those guys operate and what a huddle's supposed to sound like and that kind of stuff. So those were the kind of things that I did early on and the kind of coaches that influenced me. Dave Isle was the first guy that really made me know I wanted to be a coach. But I could talk about Marty Riggs, who was at Ada High School. I can talk about Coach Seg at LCC. Uh, Rick Shaner, who was at Bluffton High School, became a really good friend of mine and, and kind of a mentor to me when I got into high school coaching. Uh, there are literally dozens of guys that impacted me, but the guy that made me know I wanted to be a coach was Dave Isle, no question. What, what, when you think of uh, uh, Dave Isle, his brother Steve played for Bobby Knight. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, Steve. Actually, when we were attending camp there as kids, Steve came and helped at the camp a couple of summers, probably my eighth grade year, ninth grade year, maybe my 10th grade year. Steve came and helped at the camp um, because when I was uh, at the end of my freshman year of high school, Indiana played for the national title and beat Syracuse. And, and I remember struggling with who to root for because I love Steve, but man, I thought Derek Coleman was a great player <laughs> and, and that Syracuse bunch was really fun to watch. But I remember my dad saying to me, what in the hell are you struggling with who to root for? You know, the guy wearing the white uniform for Indiana. Why yeah. wouldn't you root for him? I said, I am, but I really, I really like Derek Coleman. But yeah, Steve played for, for Coach Isle and then Dave played at Ohio Northern and their, uh, their, their third brother, Jeff, also played at Ohio Northern. Okay, good, good. Very good uh, history there. Um, you said uh, those years when when you would follow Coach Seg uh, in LCC. What years were those approximately? Uh, probably 1986 or seven through about 1989. Yeah. Actually, the first time I ever made the first time I ever made it to a state tournament game was because they made it. Um, yeah. You know, my dad didn't get tickets to go to state tournament very often, and and that was just the time of year for farmers where you didn't get to do a lot of that. But, but when, when LCC went in 89, um, that was our junior year, my brother and I's junior year. And, and oh, that wow. was the first year I remember going to watch the team play. If you were to say something that you took from his coaching or that you observed, what would that have been? The funnest part of sitting behind his bench was to watch his demeanor. Um, I, I think without knowing uh, that the really good coaches – uh, across whatever level you want to talk about. The great ones coach with a great deal of intensity, and when it's time to duck into the huddle, I think their blood pressure goes down. I think their heart rate declines. I think everything flatlines, and they get totally in control of themselves and their team, and he was really masterful when it came to that. I could watch him coach his team while the, the flow of the game was going on, and he may be really intense, and he tended to be, although he didn't always show it outwardly. He had it. You could see his intensity, but when he took the crouch in front of his team in that huddle, um, he was completely in control. He was completely in charge. Uh, he talked to his guys most often, not every time, but most of the timeouts I remember were he talked to his guys more than he prodded them or pushed them or, or, or you know, got on them uh, like I – would tend to do as a coach. He wasn't very loud. Uh, and what I loved about his time, I remember one game in particular, and I wish I could remember what team they were playing, but I remember being at the old Lima senior gym behind their bench and they didn't get off to a very good start. And he took a timeout. He kind of got into his guys a little bit about their intensity and about their focus and about their effort. And, and they left that huddle and went on about a 12 to two run. And the other guy took a timeout. And when he crouched in front of his guys uh, during that timeout, he said, now they, those guys down there are having the timeout we just had. He said, because they're not very focused right now and they're not playing very hard and they kind of expected us to lay down and we didn't. And he's having the same talk with them that we just had. He said, so when we leave here, don't let them off the mat. Keep your foot on them. And I, I just thought he had a really good feel for how to get to his guys when he needed to. Um, you know, I remember one game we were watching when, when I think when Aaron Hutchins was playing, but 
It was. It was because he was putting them in. I think he had an offense he called Rover, and it was his own offense with a baseline runner. Um, but they were in the, the, the visiting team, whoever they were playing was in a man to man. And Hutch looked over and he said, Fag, they're in a man to man. And he said, I know it. Just do what I told you. <laughs> and and he, he just had a really good feel for how to get to his guys and communicate. And I thought what I learned from watching him more than anything else was that there's just different times that call for a different voice. And he was really, really good at that. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Uh, okay. Uh, so we, we talked about, uh, uh, Dave Isle a little bit uh, coming from Allen East and his tree uh, with brother Steve playing for uh, Indiana University, uh, the Hoosiers with uh, coach Bobby Knight. And I always just like to, to get your impressions uh, on, uh, on a handful of coaches because we'll talk college in this one, even though we started off with a little bit of high school and your uh, baptism into the game and how it led to where you are today. Uh, but let, let's talk a little bit about college. And what, what would you say your impressions are on uh, Coach Bobby Knight? You know, I, I grew up as a kid, and every coach that I admired deeply admired Bob Knight. Every high school coach that I talked to or, or that influenced me as a kid growing up, they all deeply admired Bob Knight, and they all loved Bob Knight. Later in my life when I got into coaching, it, well, I wasn't very old. I was 23 years old when I got the – the job at Ada High School, but Marty Riggs had been at Ada for years and was just teaching at that time. Marty and I became really good friends, and Marty just loved Bob Knight and, and most everything about Knight and the way Knight did things. And, and and so I found myself gravitating toward Coach Knight. Of course, as a college student, I was a student assistant two years for Gail Doherty and two years for Coach Campoli. Well, well Coach Doherty worked for Knight at West Point, and, and so I, I had a little bit of an understanding of who Coach Knight was from working with those guys and I attended Coach Knight's clinic in Bloomington one year as a high school coach, and, and I guess it didn't take me very long in my coaching life, probably about the age of 25 or 26, um, where I could really kind of compartmentalize Bob Knight, and I still do. Um, from, a, from a basketball standpoint and basketball IQ, I'm not sure we've ever had anybody better uh, from, from a standpoint of understanding the game and maybe influencing the game and, and causing people to, to change the way they think and change the way they operate and impact what gets taught at every level of basketball. I'm not sure anybody's ever done more than Bob Knight did. And I don't know how you don't respect that. Um, you know, what I, what I came to really separate about coach Knight was that I think the, the truly, truly great coaches of today, much more so than the great coaches of that time, like him, they are versatile coaches and they adapt to the times and they adapt to their players and they adapt to uh, the culture that they, that they're living in. Um, he didn't do that. And, and I feel sad for him because of that, because I think with what he had to offer from a knowledge standpoint, um, if he had been willing to adapt, if he had been less ego driven, um, I think we could have seen some amazing things out of him well into his seventies, uh, which would have been great for the game of basketball. Unfortunately, my final summation of Bob Knight is that, the legacy that he left will be forever tarnished by the fact that he became, whether he would have acknowledged it then, I think he would have to now, is he allowed himself to become bigger than the game and bigger than the university that he worked for. Uh, and that's the unfortunate part because what I'm going to live the rest of my life trying to do, whether I've been a volunteer assistant coach like I've been for the last three or four years, or whether I get back into you know, official capacity coaching full time, is nothing's ever going to be bigger than the game. Nothing's ever going to be bigger than trying to teach kids and trying to develop players and trying to, to spread the game and share the game and watch the game grow. Uh, I thought Coach Knight had the opportunity to do that, and he didn't, he didn't allow it to happen through him. He stunted the game because of the way he handled people and because of the way he handled his professional role. Uh, he stunted not only his own, his own legacy, but he stunted the growth of basketball, and that's unfortunate. Yeah, uh, Bob Knight uh, with uh, three national championships and then – passing it down to a guy who played for him at West Point, Mike Krzyzewski. We'll talk about Coach K coming up. In that same era that uh, I remember so well with Coach Knight and Digger Phelps, uh, along came a guy that uh, was uh, uh, instrumental in uh, bringing the Georgetown brand to America where no one knew of Georgetown uh, outside of the academic circles, and it was John Thompson. What were your thoughts on that era where it became Big East Monday night basketball on uh, ESPN, Big Monday and John Thompson and 
all of the great Louis Carnesecca and Raleigh Massimino and Jim Beheim. What are your thoughts on uh, the big fella from uh, Georgetown and John Thompson? Well, in a lot of ways, Matt, I feel like I was born a little bit late for that. And it's one of the disappointing things about being in my age group was I was just getting interested in college basketball and passionate about it about the time the Big East was taken off. Mm. You know, I was when Georgetown won their national title under John Thompson, I was I wasn't quite 12 years old yet uh, when they won the national title uh, over Houston in, in Seattle. Um, and in the 85 upset, but to loss to Villanova, I was pulling so hard for Villanova. It made my body ache because I had just met coach Massimino that summer. Um, right. I had basically introduced myself to Gail Doherty and Joe Campoli as a high school student. I basically went over to the camp, introduced myself and said, I'd really like to meet coach Massimino cause I really pulled for his team. And they took, I mean, they didn't know me from a bale of hay, but they did. But, but the thing about that whole era of college coaching, I think John Thompson stands alone from those other guys in a couple of ways one is he had the I, I call it the dichotomy of John Thompson because I thought John Thompson was was more of a social activist than any coach in college at that time I mean he went on the floor with the understanding that he was trying to a, a certain degree to advance his racial group the African-American group that he represented he was a uh, an African-American coach at a time when there weren't very many. He was achieving at a high level. His team was a team that was widely vilified. Um, and, and he coached with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. Um, most guys that coached in that era did not coach with a chip on their shoulder. They didn't coach from a, from a standpoint of, of having a socially activist type of view or type of mindset. John Thompson did, and he was almost adversarial with the media. When at the same time, and this is the part about John Thompson that I always found puzzling, is he figured out, I think, a little bit earlier than some of those other guys that what he was doing could make him rich. Mm. <laughs> and I think it became important. Like, he, he pursued that. He pursued the Nike contract and the money from Nike. And, and so he was a guy who I thought was very – he was very segmented in terms of how he approached things. He had the, the coach – you know, the, the coach's coach in him that was about developing young men and developing players and developing a program. He had this big, wide – picture wide angle lens vision of himself that could say I can become wealthy and influential in, in, in ways no one ever dreamed about by doing what I'm doing and and a lot of times those two things would seem in my, in my mind those two things would seem to be at odds with one another but he married the two and he did it extremely well uh, I didn't ever root for Georgetown uh, because I always thought they were a little bit of I was always an underdog kind of guy and I thought they were bullies but when you look back at the Georgetown teams that he coached uh, they did embody a couple of things. One, they embodied tremendous toughness. Two, they embodied absolute team basketball. Because when you look back at those era, that era of basketball, Georgetown had guys like Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mourning, um, who were really big marquee names. But go back and look at the games that those guys played in. Very seldom did anybody on the team take more than 13 or 14 shots in a game. Guys that you didn't know, the Bill Martins, the Michael Jacksons, some of those guys were just as important to their teams as the marquee guys because they were built at the defensive end of the floor first, and that's what fed their offense. But they were the type of team that was absolutely created to play in that mid-'80s Big East. And I've, I've often wondered this. I don't know if the Big East was better for Georgetown or if Georgetown was better for the Big East. I'm not sure what the answer to that question is. Mm, no, it was a great conference, and uh, – it uh, lent itself to. Uh, you're right. It, 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 there, there was there. You, I, I really do feel like you were either on on Team Georgetown or you were way against Team Georgetown uh, as they went through. Can you imagine that uh, Ralph Sampson and Patrick Ewing? I think Ralph may have stayed. I don't know if he stayed all four years, but uh, Jordan stayed three. Patrick stayed four. Um, can you imagine? that that was the case back then. That's why you got to know these guys so well versus today where there's uh, the freshman year and then they're off to the NBA. Well, it, it is kind of amazing because now we look at guys that go to college and we watch them for a year or two and they think, man, they have no business being here. Uh, they should not be in college. And all I remember thinking, and I'll go one, one little, maybe not generation, but close to that, the generation right after that bunch, because Ralph played four and Ewing played four and it made sense. You know, guys went to college and played four years. And, and the idea that Ralph Sampson would play four years in today's NBA mm. atmosphere is, is it's comical. 
But I always said this. I always said if Shaquille O'Neal can play three years of college, anybody should play three years of college. And now nobody plays three years of college anymore. And and it always made me laugh that if if, if a guy like Shaquille could play three years, I figure everybody ought to play three. But, you know, you got Garnett and Kobe, you know, coming out of high school. And really Weber was the first guy in that, that early 90s group that he got into and he went. Uh, and then it just became one of those things where I think the entire NBA started doing everything based on potential. Um, and, and you could see lots of guys have opportunities to leave college or skip college entirely that, again, I think back to, uh, let's use this name, for example, Michael Jordan, when he was running the, the Washington Wizards, drafted Kwame Brown with the number one pick as a high school player. Kwame mm-hmm. Brown didn't play any college and Shaq played three years. What the hell? What the hell's wrong with that picture? That's that's great. That's yeah, that that is so well said. Uh, you kind of bump in from uh, Knight and John Thompson, then you bump into Knight's protege in Coach K. Uh, they get to the finals uh, against Denny Crum in Louisville in '86 uh, in Dallas, and they end up uh, winning uh, or losing that game. But it kind of set uh, the tone and and uh, the pathway for Coach K going forward as he was able to bring in the likes of uh, Christian Leitner and Bobby Hurley and Grant Hill. What do you take away over uh, that early period of Coach K? Well, you know, it's been said, I think, by a lot of different people, maybe a lot of different ways, but Coach K was fortunate to begin his career at Duke when he did, uh, because had he, had he been 15 years younger or come along 10 or 15 years later, um, he would have never gotten to be Coach K because his first three or four seasons would have gotten him fired, mm-hmm. uh, most likely. Yeah. And, and I think people know that, but they don't necessarily own it until they go back and look at the numbers. I did not have an impressive start to his career at Duke. His first two years especially weren't very good. His third year was was mediocre at best. And and then, you know, the, the group that turned it for him, uh, the Allery, Dawkins, Amaker, you know, Billis, that group, uh, they even struggled. You know, they came in with all this this reputation and this great, highly ranked recruited class. But their first couple of years, they struggled to meet expectations. They had pretty good years, but they struggled to meet expectations. And they put it together in 86. And I'm struck by that. And I think Coach K, one of the things about Coach K is, I mean, make, make no mistake about it, guys that coach at that level all have enormous egos. I think you have to to make it at that level. But he had the unique combination of, that ego that he kept in check with a certain level of humility. Uh, And and I think he never allowed, at least publicly, he never allowed Mike Krzyzewski to become bigger than Duke University. And and I think that was important to to their success with him because what happened in 86 didn't have to continue. I mean, there have been lots of teams that put together a really good class. Lots of schools that like Duke maybe had a, a, a fairly long ago history of success and had stagnated a little bit, who can put together runs of one or two years. But what happened in 86 created something that through Coach K's humility, through his work ethic, through his adaptability, mm-hmm. um, he continued and he made changes to the how they do things. You know, if you look back to their, their first national title, that, that was at 92 I think was their first national title. And he had on, on that coaching staff, Tommy Amaker was on that staff, uh, but he had Pete Gaudet, he had Mike Bray. Um, and I think Billis was, was maybe getting his masters or something. Yeah. yeah. Was on that yes. staff as well. But when he got through with that run of guys, when Pete Gaudet was the guy who took over for the one year that coach K had his back surgery and was out and things didn't go well at all. Mike Bray went on to become the coach at Notre Dame. But it was interesting to me that Coach K made the decision after Mike Bray was gone that he was never going to hire another assistant that didn't play for him. And, and I think that sent a great message to his guys that we're Duke. We're not Coach K and Duke. We're Duke. And, and he wanted Duke guys doing Duke things. And, and the recruiting's continued. Now, they've lost several guys. Obviously, Wojciechowski's gone on. He's at Marquette. And Chris Collins is at Northwestern. And Johnny Dawkins has had a couple different jobs. And Amaker had a couple different jobs. And he's at Harvard now. But he continues to – stock his staff with Duke guys because I think the first thing that he has done is remain humble and make sure that everybody understands that Duke is bigger than everybody and he's been able to find high school kids that buy into that and and don't make no mistake I think he's made tremendous adjustments and changes to how he coaches I know he has because I can watch those films from the 80s and watch his teams play now and there's nothing similar about how they play uh, but I give him all the credit in the world for being a guy that, that creates and casts a vision for what his program is and is true to that, 
while staying flexible and adaptable in how he goes about operating that program. I think he deserves more credit than he gets, and I'm not sure you can give anybody more credit than he gets. Yeah, that's, you know, the flexibility piece, that's such a uh, well-used uh, vernacular there by you because he has. He, if, you would, if you would say, hey, who are the two guys that do the one and done the best or the most, I guess it's Coach K and Coach Cal uh, from Kentucky. You would have never put those two in the same category a decade ago. No, and the interesting thing is I think there's a difference between the two of them because I think Coach Cal with open arms embraced the one-and-done deal and wanted to get out in front of people on it, and that's Cal's deal. I think Coach K was kind of dragged kicking and screaming into it a little bit. Corey mm. McGetty came there as a really highly ranked recruit and left after one year when nobody had ever done that. And, and I think to Coach K's credit, he looked at that and said, well, we can either not recruit those kind of kids or we can understand that if you want to win, that's the kind of talent you have to have. And we got to figure out a way to make that work. And, and mm. I, I, I fault nobody and criticize nobody that says I don't want to recruit one and done. I, I tip my hat to them and you got to have your philosophy and you got to stand by it. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, but at the, at the same time, coach K saw that he wasn't going to be able to avoid those kind of kids if he wanted to stay at that elite level talent wise. And he's found a way to make it work. Now I, I do believe he's compromised a little bit in terms of, uh, of coaching just strictly from an X and O standpoint. I think coaching for Mike Krzyzewski is much bigger than strategy and, and tacticians or tactical type work. Um, it's much bigger than that. And he does a better job of the whole picture of coaching in terms of developing them as players individually. And, and, but they don't, they don't run much offense at Duke anymore. Um, they don't run a lot of offense at all. In fact, I'm not sure they even discuss shot selection with their guys. Uh, I think they just get them to guard people and, and play really hard, and then he, he gives them a whole lot of freedom at the offensive end, which wasn't the case when they were building that program. But, again, that goes back to his adaptability. And because he's got an established program and he's got the voice that he has with his assistant coaches as well, the message is always consistent that we can give you lots of freedom, but we're still Duke and nothing's bigger than Duke. And he gets a lot of buy-in from a lot of guys that aren't going to be there very long. Yeah, indeed. Uh, we, uh, we listen to Dan Patrick quite a bit and he's a big, uh, big therapy for me every day to be able to listen to Dan Patrick, especially <laughs> in these times. Uh, and he, uh, he puts uh, Christian Leitner right there on the Mount Rushmore of uh, college basketball, talking about just the accomplishments and, college basketball, not the pros, nothing else. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on uh, Leitner? You know, nobody wants to hear this because they don't want to hear that, that qualifier that you just added at the end, and it's absolutely true. If, if you are evaluating a college basketball player without consideration of anything else, I'm not sure how you say anybody was better than Christian Leitner in the history of the game. Now, greatness has different levels, and I understand that, that – you can't talk about Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You can't talk about that guy without understanding the whole entirety of who he was. And his three years as a varsity player in, in, at UCLA were as dominant as anybody's could be. But Leitner had four years. <laughs> and, and, and it's not Kareem's fault. And it's not Leitner's fault. Kareem wasn't allowed to have four years. Leitner was. And I, I just if, – if you get past about – three or four names in the greatest college players in the history of division one college basketball. If you get beyond name three or four and you haven't named Leitner, I think you're either biased or not paying attention. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Uh, all right. Uh, kind of the coach K of the big 10 over the last uh, couple of decades has been Tom Izzo at Michigan state. Uh, he's been the face of the big 10 and has had great success. What are your thoughts on Coach Iz? His current issues notwithstanding, and I think he may be facing some real problems from the political uh, or from the public perception angle here because of this, this issue with him allegedly contacting witnesses before. I, whatever, I don't want to get into that too much. But I, I look at Izzo as another guy. I, 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 well, this is odd because he's a little dumpy, short white guy, and John Thompson's a, a mammoth black man. Um, but I compare the two of them favorably in this regard. Uh, Tom Izzo you know, got into coaching just because he loved coaching. And Tom Izzo was an assistant to Judd Heathcote for a long time. And Tom Izzo did everything he did. In my estimation, it was driven out of passion, uh, the desire to just be the best and be great at what he does. Hmm. Um, and he somehow managed to adapt and grow and develop as a coach to where he is a legit CEO. Um, you know, and I think you have to be that more now than you ever had to be 
maybe even 25 years ago, but certainly 30 years ago, when I was coming out of high school, guys didn't really want CEOs. They were great coaches. And Izzo's a great coach who's also a CEO. Michigan State is an enormous brand, and, and he's done a great job of being the face of that brand through a lot of different eras of basketball. He's a little different than what we talked about with Coach K in that obviously he's adaptable, but he's still a guy who is pretty consistent in how they play. They run a, a ton of sets. Um, and they're driven by that offensively. Um, they build their program almost entirely on toughness. What I love about Izzo is he is the one guy who has said there's an old school way to coach, and that's the way I believe it should be done, and he's still doing it. Mm-hmm. Holds his players entirely accountable, was remarkably demanding, has that sideline demeanor that, that's fallen out of favor with a lot of people over the last 15 or 20 years. But it's who he is, and he hasn't had to change that to be successful um, you know, I, obviously I'm an Ohio State fan because I'm, that's, that's how I was raised. But if you removed Ohio State from the equation, there, there's not a program in the Big Ten that I like watching more than Michigan State. And it's partly because of what he has instilled in the program, that consistency at the defensive end first. They execute the heck out of their stuff on offense. And all of his guys are held accountable on the floor, and I love it. Yeah, yeah. Well said, uh, Cookie. Uh, we're visiting with John Cook on the Lima Land Hoops and History podcast. Um, before we get to Ohio State, which we will get to here uh, in a moment, uh, why don't you talk uh, a little bit about Roy Williams and uh, his uh, two stints, one at Kansas and then uh, the recent uh, UNC success? Uh, it's interesting because there would have been a time maybe 10 or 15 years ago when all I would have wanted to talk to you about was Roy Williams, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I, I, I became a Kansas fan uh, probably right before I got into high school. I saw Danny Manning clips as a high school player on some sports report I was watching. He was a high school player in, in North Carolina, and I saw these clips of this kid, and I, I said to my brother, I said, I got I to gotta find out where that kid goes, and, and I'm going I'm to root for that kid. Uh, he was he was ahead of his time. He was a six ten or six eleven kid that handled the ball like a guard and all that all those things. Saying that, I became a Kansas fan in, in the mid eighties. I became a Kansas fan, and so when when they won the national title in nineteen eighty eight and Larry Brown left, I, I didn't want to stop rooting for Kansas. I was really curious to see who they would hire, and all these names were out there, and you're hearing all these possibilities, and then they hire Roy Williams. And nobody in the hell world knew who the hell Roy Williams was. I mean, nobody knew who Roy Williams was, if they, unless they were a real diehard basketball fan. And certainly at 16 years of age or 17, I didn't know much about Roy Williams. But I instantly became a fan because of the fact that I didn't know him. As yeah. I said, I'm a guy who tends to root for underdogs. And when Roy Williams got hired at, at Kansas, I wanted to see what that meant, how, what he would become. Now, I'll, I'll say this about Roy Williams. Um, I'm not sure there's a guy in the game better at being a system-driven coach and getting teams to play to that system and really, really achieve. Um, transition stuff, they're the best. I love their secondary break, always have. It was Dean Smith's secondary break, but I got news for you. Coach Roy took it to a different level in terms of how effective it was at Kansas. Um, you know, when he left Kansas to go to Carolina, um, I was heartbroken. I didn't want him to leave. When he, he, you know, he had a chance to leave three years earlier, and he stayed. And I thought it was great. I had been out to Kansas that summer and, and that fall and gone to their Midnight Madness. And, and late that year, he opted to stay. So I was all on board. But when he went to Carolina, I had two thoughts. One was, uh, this is the perfect ending to a guy's career, however long it takes for the end to get here, because not everybody gets to go home and write their story. And I thought that was great for him. My, my concern with Roy going back to Carolina was, you know, do you ever get out from underneath Dean Smith? I mean, can you ever be given the credit you deserve for doing what you do? Because it's Dean was such a a specter over that program. And um, I don't enjoy watching Roy Williams' teams play as well now as I used to. I don't think they execute as well. Um, certainly they didn't this year. Obviously this year is kind of an aberration, we would think. Um, but, again, I think it's all subject to players coming and not staying very long. I said Roy Williams was a great system coach, and he is. And Roy Williams doesn't get a chance to install a system and watch it develop over three or four years with kids anymore. And I think that's part of the reason that his teams suffer. Uh, at least their execution and their on-floor performance. But, um, you know, there's two different schools of thought on Roy Williams publicly. Some people think of Roy as as um, just a, a country boy that's, that's, that's made it big, and, and he's easy to root for because of that. The other side of that coin is there are people who think that the country boy image that Roy has is pretty fake, and, and, and it's not legitimate. It's it's disingenuous, and, and Roy is, is a little bit of an egomaniac. And I've said before earlier to you, I said, I, you can't coach at that level without having a huge ego. But I'll always root for Roy Williams um, because I think Roy Williams is another guy who has said, 
Dean Smith is Dean Smith and nobody will ever approach Dean Smith and North Carolina basketball is bigger than any one person. And he's conducted himself in that way, that he is not any bigger than the program that he leads. And he's certainly not any bigger than the, the uh, legends of the game that coached before him. And I always yep. respect that about the way he runs his program. And you said something earlier about uh, Kansas and who some of those uh, candidates were to replace Larry Brown after Danny Manning's run in 88 uh, in the national championship. Do you recall any of those other names that were being tossed around for the Kansas job? I don't remember any of the specific, the, the head coaches. There were, there were guys that would be linked to it. I mean, you know, at, at that time, some of the marquee programs in the country weren't real. UCLA wasn't UCLA, if you understand what I'm saying. So there wasn't that, the yeah. guy at UCLA, who I think at the time was, uh, might have been Jim Herrick. And, and you know, that was, well, is that a move a guy like Jim Herrick would, would be interested in making because UCLA is struggling? Um, you know, there were, there were some more, um, how do I want to say this? Um, lesser marquee guys that were head coaches at the time that people would mention and they would almost immediately be dismissed. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be similar to what would happen now. If, if Roy Williams left North Carolina today, and you tell me, who, who's the next head coach of North Carolina? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't uh, think I know. I think yeah. there's a lot of names you could throw out, but I think they would be dismissed because it just doesn't feel like it's a great fit. And that's why when they settled on Roy Williams, it was almost like, well, they didn't ever get a marquee guy, so they're going to yeah. settle on Roy Williams. And the interesting thing is I read an article one time where they talked about what sold them on Roy was during his interview. He talked at Kansas about his love for North Carolina, and he actually teared up in the interview and said, if we can build that here, I'll have been successful. Oh, that's and he great. said that, that passion that he displayed for Carolina and trying to bring that there is what sold him on that. And that's what I think maybe is missing in a lot of college coaching searches now is who, who's coming in that, that, that can talk about their passion for a place because guys are about their own brand and their own individual name. And that's, that's yeah. what people chase after. I, and I love Brad Stevens, but Brad Stevens, he's going to be a hot name anytime a job at the NBA or the college level opens. And, and what, do you, what do you tie Brad Stevens to? He's just Brad Stevens. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, visiting with John Cook, uh, he's uh, our colleague as well as uh, our uh, latest uh, addition to the cast here with uh, Limeland Hoops and History. Okay, uh, let's uh, let's talk Ohio State. Uh, your first impressions? It had to be right in the Jimmy Jackson era, late '80s, early '90s. Randy Ayers was the coach. What do you remember about uh, those teams? Uh, I, I remember being really disappointed when Gary Williams left Ohio State. That's the first thing I remember. Is I, I was pretty young, but I really liked Gary Williams. And, and so when he left, I was pretty disappointed. When they hired Randy Ayers, I was literally – you hit the nail right on the head. I was just starting to really follow it at a high level. I mean, I watched Eldon Miller's teams play as a kid, and I knew who Herb Williams was, and I knew who Kelvin Ramsey was. But when Gary Williams coached them and he moved on, the Randy Ayers era began my real passionate following of Ohio State basketball. And, and, and I loved Randy Ayers because all I knew about him was these talented kids that are coming here to play, he's the guy recruiting them. So let's see if he can coach them. And, and I was excited for him to have that opportunity to do that. Um, I, I don't have fond memories of the Randy Ayers era in terms of the coaching. I, you know, the team was fun to watch. Jim Jackson is – still the greatest Ohio State basketball player I've ever seen play. And I, I'm not sure how much longer I, mean, I could live in. I could double my age right now and live into my 90s. And I don't think I'll ever say I've seen a better player at Ohio State than Jim Jackson. Again, because he was there three years, that was a big part of it. Um, but I'm not sure Randy Ayers was a terrific coach. I don't think he was necessarily a bad coach. Um, you know, Randy Ayers, I've said this for a, a lot of years now. You look back to the end of the Randy Ayers era, he was basically run out of Columbus um, for a lot of different off-the-court problems that some of his players had. And at one point, at the end of his tenure at Ohio State, Randy Ayers had Indiana's Mr. Basketball, Kentucky's Mr. Basketball, and Ohio's Mr. Basketball on the same roster. And all of those – well, two of those three guys, you know, had some off-the-court issues, and, and Derek Anderson ended up transferring and leaving the, 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 the Kentucky Mr. Basketball. Um, so – all of that stuff combined end up leading to him being dismissed. And I, I said for years, I feel bad for Randy Ayers because he got fired for recruiting kids that if he hadn't got them to come to school, he'd have probably gotten fired anyway. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it seemed like the initial part of Randy Ayers went really well. 
and it was uh, an extension of his coaching onto the floor with uh, a guy like Jimmy Jackson and what he brought to Ohio State. I thought it was enormous that he went to Ohio State coming out of Toledo with he could have gone anywhere really in the country. Uh, and then to be able to have, you know, as you said, the next Mr. Basketballs from the tri-state area, um, I just think it, it really was a reflection of how much of a leader Jim Jackson was and how he was able to be that extension and exactly what a young coach needed at the time. And then maybe he just didn't have that same leadership pieces uh, with the other guys. Uh, we've got about 10 uh, minutes and I, left. And I think that, sorry, I, I think that generational shift we talked about too caught airs a little bit because when he got into Ohio State, he had Jim Jackson, he had Jamal Brown, he had Mark Baker. Mark Baker was a Prop 48 kid who had to sit a year because of his academics. And, and he matured and he developed and he became a grown man and a leader. And a lot of those kids that, that Ayers was recruiting later on that, those were guys that if they'd have been academically ineligible, they wouldn't have gone to college. They'd have sat their year and went pro. So they went to that next step immediately where the first group of guys that he got to coach were guys that were looking to win for Ohio State. They were yeah. looking to build something at Ohio State as a group. And he went on later. He recruited guys that were looking for how, how long do I have to be here before I can make that next step? Yeah. Yeah, well said. Uh, yeah, we got about uh, eight minutes left uh, in this uh, edition of the podcast. Um, how, in just a sentence, or just a sense, because we could go on for a long time, but how crushing was the blow uh, for the Jimmy Jackson-led team uh, playing the Fab Five down at Rupp Arena in the regional final? I had that game on VHS for another 14 years after that game was played <laughs> before I threw it away. And I bet I, and I bet I watched it 35 times, Matt. I, I couldn't get past it. <laughs> That's uh, that, that I, I didn't have that same reaction, but boy, I know exactly where I was. I know exactly what happened. And uh, yeah, I was crestfallen because, you know, the good news was they were going to get to play Cincinnati in that uh, semifinal of the final four. So they would have been yep. playing against Bob Huggins and then they would have got to play Duke if they win that game, like the fab five did. And uh, that, I just think it would have been great to be able to, for those kids uh, in following Jimmy Jackson, being at the university of Toledo, the same four years that he was at Maycomer uh, was, uh, would have been, it would have been a, a, a pleasure and a, and a special cherry on top of the uh, ice cream cone at the end of the day. Uh, me. All right, uh, fast forwarding, we'll go past Jim O'Brien. What were your thoughts uh, on Thad Mata in a, in a couple of paragraphs? L love Thad Mata as a man and, and as a coach, thought he did a really good job of playing to his strengths as a coach. His teams reflected him to the nth degree. Uh, I think Thad Mata's physical difficulties hurt him down the, the end of his t tenure at Ohio State in terms of recruiting. And, and I think it's undis uh, indisputable that he made some recruiting mistakes and that ultimately cost him. Yeah, uh, he did have some incredible recruiting years, get to the Final Four. They did lose to Kansas. They, I think they won the first half against Kansas and then lost it. It was Sullinger, it was Diebler, it was Aaron Kraft. Those were fun guys to root for. What are your impressions of that, that Buckeye uh, era? I love that group of kids because, again, like I said, they, they reflected their head coach. They were really, really tough. They were really, really selfless, and they had wonderful chemistry. Uh, as teams, I thought Thad Mata took those guys and got each of them as close to his potential uh, as a as a coach could get his guy. Now a staff does that; it's not one guy, but you got to give the head coach credit. That's what happens. And I thought individually, each of those guys came as close to maximizing his own potential as he could. And collectively, I think they were better than the sum of their parts. I really do. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's uh, finish up with. Uh, your, uh, as you mentioned before, assistant uh, women's basketball coach at ONU, uh, but uh, you you got uh, a lot of uh, influence early on with Coach Doherty and Coach Campoli. Uh, if you could uh, share some thoughts about your experiences with them and what that was like with some national championships in there and uh, just some Final Fours, uh, just an incredible run for the Polar Bears. Well, I said this the other day, I spent this past year helping the men's program, and I'm probably not going to be coaching this next year, which is disappointing. I really like to coach, but my son's a senior in high school, and I want to be fully focused on, on his, his senior year, and that's a whole different deal. But, you know, four years at Ohio Northern as a student assistant, two under Coach Doherty and two under Coach Campoli, 
Um, the first thing that I learned at a very early age being there is that great coaching is great coaching. I don't care what level you're at. And I, I began to develop the understanding in my early 20s that Division three coaches are coaches. You have to be on TV, on ESPN to, to be a great coach, and those guys are great coaches. The second thing that I remember knowing is that oftentimes it's the players that determine the, the level of success that you have, but it's the foundation that you build as a coach that determines what the – what the ultimate success level can be. My first two years at Ohio Northern, we were a game or two over 500 the first year and maybe three or four games over 500 the second year. The third year, we went 28 and two and won the national title. And yes, we had a, a, a tra two transfer players come in that were really, really great players. And but the reason we won a national title is because we took those two supremely talented kids and we put them into a culture that was already doing things like champions do it. And I think that was underestimated by fans, typically, especially parents and high school programs. You don't know if you have a great coach just because you're winning or losing. That's not what you know. It's, it's when the talent level changes, things are going to be impacted by it. But when you do things like champions and the talent gets right, you can be special. And we were that at Northern for that year that we won the national title. I, I you know, I thought about different paths I could have taken. I was offered a chance to get a scholarship and go be a, a student assistant at a Division II NAIA school in Kentucky. Uh, one year right toward the end of my time at Northern and and I thought man free school and he was going to give me a job when I graduated I thought it might be the way to go but looking back over it for me to have four years under Gail Doherty and Joe Campoli mm. um, regardless of what happens with my coaching career I wouldn't trade that for anything and I can't put a value on it absolutely can't yeah what was the uh, relationship between Raleigh Massimino and uh, the folks at Ohio Northern Coach Doherty and Coach Campoli coached high school basketball together in New York um, when they started their careers. They were teachers and coaches in the same building. Coach Doherty was the head coach. Coach Campoli was his JV coach before Coach D left to go back and work with Coach Knight. Um, and Coach Massimino met them when they were in New York coaching high school basketball. That's how they got connected, how they got to know one another. Um, and and that era of, of those guys coming up through Coach – Doherty or Coach Campoli specifically was from the state of New York. Uh, he got connected at that time to guys like Ronnie Rothstein, uh, knew Hubie Brown a little bit, but they met Coach Mass at that time, and that's they, they developed a lifelong friendship from that. Hmm. Very good. Coach, uh, it's been a pleasure. This is part one. We'll do part two down the road. I'd like to get your thoughts not only on a summary of uh, the Lima Land hoops and history on the high school side, uh, but also uh, this year and what this year looked like, what, what it was setting up to be. You were courtside for a number of those sectional district regional games and the games that uh, took place uh, during the regular season. And uh, there was a, a heck of an opportunity for, again, the Lima Land hoops and uh, the region here collectively to really shine down in Columbus uh, as it has for many, many decades. Uh, and it was uh, unfortunately uh, not to be uh, with the uh, the healthcare crisis that's going on in our country, but uh, you provided uh, some great, great uh, dialogue and information, conversation, and uh, great looks back and and uh, your thoughts on what basketball really means uh, to this era. It's uh, always a pleasure to be with you. I hope that uh, we can do it in person in the near future, and uh, I wish you all the best, my friend, uh, you and your family, and uh, stay healthy. You keep yourself safe and healthy as well. I, I could do this once a week, man. This is a lot of fun. So I love what you're doing with this, and, and I'm going to get the word out and keep spreading the word so that more people can listen to, to the things you do because I got the first few episodes in and, and listen to those, and, and especially now, this kind of stuff can be really good for people. I know it's been good for me. It's a lot of fun. Thanks. For sure. Thanks, buddy. Hey, we'll talk soon. Yep, see you.